Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John 4 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers coming down right now that would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please keep it. But we're going to be in John chapter 4. And uh, before we jump into that, want to give a quick update. We have our high schoolers at Camp Harvest uh, this weekend. And I got a text last night at like one in the morning from Jordan Grotenheis, our high school pastor, and he said that we had 18 kids come forward and give their life to Christ at camp uh, just last night. So um, really thankful for what the Lord's doing there. It sounds like they're having a great weekend. I haven't heard of any broken limbs or anything like that either. So that's a win. Want to catch you up to speed on where we're at. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that we looked at a story. We started a story of an interaction that Jesus has with a woman in Samaria. Do you, do you remember this? He's at a well. He's tired. He's thirsty. And uh, a woman comes to him and, and he asks her for a drink. And, and this is interesting because this woman had been canceled by her community. No one talked to her. She didn't have any relationships because she had sin in her background, sin in her past. And Jesus chose to frame her, not by her failure, not by her weakness, but he chose to love her and view her through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of hope. And last week we saw the compassion and grace and kindness of Jesus on display in a really powerful way. So before I roll out the big idea this morning, I just want to double check something, make sure that we're all on the same page. Do me a favor, raise your hand if genuinely and honestly in your heart, you can say, man, I want to see people and love people like Jesus does. All right, following Jesus means we want to be like Jesus. And yeah, 98% of the hands went up in this room. And uh, I kind of just bait and switched, switched you there because here's what we're going to see this morning. Here's the big idea that to truly follow Jesus, if we want to love people and see people like Jesus does, to truly follow him means that you and I must become comfortable with difficult conversations. We must become comfortable being uncomfortable. And I want to be clear about what I'm saying right now. When I'm saying that we need to become comfortable with difficult conversations, I'm not saying that we need to like them or enjoy them. Right, Most sane people don't like having hard conversations, but we need to acknowledge and accept that part of following Christ means we're going to have people say hard things to us and speak into our lives. And we need, if we're going to love people like Jesus, to speak hard things into others' lives as well. I met a lady from our church this week on Friday, and uh, she was like, oh, Cal, I loved uh, your message last week. She goes, we had a, a child get dedicated, so my extended family came to church, and it was just a perfect message for them to be at church at because it was all about Jesus' grace and his kindness, and it was so uplifting. And I told her, man, I'm glad they were there last weekend because this weekend a hammer is dropping. And we're going to see a different way that Jesus loved in this passage. And um, it's wild that one of the things I know about being a pastor is that there are certain weekends, certain sermons, certain passages of scripture that I know if I'm going to teach this passage faithfully, I am for sure, for sure going to say things that people don't like 
that ruffle people's feathers and that stretch us in our faith and how we see Jesus. Um, which reminds me, if you're new or visiting here, my name is Pastor Chris Moeller, and my email is chris at harvestspringlake.org. I would love to get your feedback after the message. Shoot me an email. All right, I love you guys. Let's go. I'm not correcting anything there. Um, look at verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and have him come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, here's the first thing we need to see from the text very, very clearly. Jesus engages in a difficult conversation, right? Up to this point, this is just two people being friendly, having small talk, and Jesus, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is like, hey, go get your husband. And the woman's like, well, I don't have one. And then Jesus goes, yeah, I know. You've had five, and you're living with a guy who isn't your husband. He moves this conversation to the most difficult area of her life, and he's pushing to be a source of truth. All right, but for a second, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the place of that woman when Jesus says these things. Like, imagine being that woman in that moment where Jesus is like, yeah, I know you have five husbands and you're living with a guy that's not your husband, right? Can you feel her blood pressure go up in that moment? She probably breaks out into a cold sweat. She maybe even begins to tear up and get emotional. She can't think straight. She is embarrassed and she is horrified and she is thinking, not again, someone else knows I'm going to be defined by this failure of morality in my life. Like this woman would have been horrified and embarrassed and shocked that Jesus would have said these things to her. So here's my question. Was it loving? For Jesus to bring this up, is he loving this woman? And the fact that we're uncomfortable even saying yes or no proves that what Jesus is doing here is he is attacking two common lies that you and I tend to believe about love. Here's the first lie we believe about love, that your love for me is determined by how it makes me feel. All right, this is a lie that's prevalent in our society, and we believe this for a couple of reasons. First of all, we wildly overemphasize our feelings, we increasingly live in a culture where the truest and most important thing about us is how we feel in the moment. It is more important than what is true, what is right, what we can objectively track with data. Everything in our life is secondary to how we feel. Feelings are driving everything. So the test of your love for me is when I'm with you, do you make me feel good? Right, so if I go out to lunch with Matt Varley over here, and if we talk and have a good conversation, and afterwards I feel great about myself because he was funny and kind and nice, I'm like, man, I love Matt. He's such a loving guy because when I'm with him, I feel great. That's how we define love. And here's the crazy thing. We know that love is more than just making someone feel good, right? How many of you in here have little kids or have had, had little kids before? Right, when you discipline your kids, are you doing it because you love them? Absolutely. Do they enjoy it in the moment? Does it make them feel good? No. 
but you're trying to protect them. You're trying to help them. You're trying to mature them. So you've got to make the choice. I'm going to sacrifice momentary peace for the sake of what is best for them out of love. But as adults, we buy into this lie that if you're a loving person, that's going to result in me feeling good when I'm around you. The other reason we believe this first lie is because we also live in a society where affirmation is the highest virtue. Affirmation is the highest virtue because feelings are king. The best thing you can be is someone who affirms someone, and the worst thing you can be is someone who's judgmental. No one wants to be judgy. And so our cultures redefine love. Again, if you love me, you will affirm me, not judge me, make me feel good. And I was talking with Mary about this last night, and we were like, isn't that what basically all of small talk is? It's just fly by affirming each other as much as we can, right? If I run into Jeff stuck in the hall, like, and we're doing small talk, hey, Jeff, how's your job going? Oh, great, amazing, you're doing wonderful. How's your family? Oh, it's going great, awesome. It's like, I'm trying to make him feel as good as I possibly can. That's how we've been wired to interact with each other. So what happens is, is when affirmation is the highest virtue and the worst thing you can be is someone who's judgmental, loving, hard conversations become endangered species, don't they? Right? We're terrified to have conversations that say what you're doing is not wise or this doesn't honor the Lord or you need to end this relationship or you need to come clean to your spouse. These conversations are avoided like the plague because we don't want to be seen as someone who's judgmental because there's a stigma to that in our society. There are churches in our community and all over our country who love to celebrate how loving they are when they are affirming in people the very things that God calls sin. And what's heartbreaking about that is they're actually not loving people at all, they're condemning them. But when affirmation is the highest virtue, we believe that that's what love is. And then here's the second lie we believe about love. It's this. It's that love is possible at the expense of truth. One of the things I love in John 1, he's describing Jesus, who's his best friend, and he makes this statement. He says in John 1:14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth that Jesus was perfectly loving and he was perfectly full of both grace and truth. Did you know that never once, if you read all of the gospels, never once in Jesus's earthly ministry will you ever find him sacrifice the truth for the sake of peace in the moment. He was always willing to tell someone the difficult truth and he was fully willing to be gracious and have compassion. This story of the woman at the well is a perfect example. He leads with compassion and kindness and he talks to a woman that no one else will talk to and he shows great kindness to her. But then he says, hey, we need to deal with the issue in your life. Another example of this is the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus who's been caught in the act of adultery and they want to stone her and Jesus stands in the gap and defends her when no one else will. But then he tells the woman, go and sin no more. Full of grace, but also full of truth. Our problem is we believe that grace and love are the same things. I've had people tell me, Cal, you're more of a truth guy, but I'm more of a love guy. And I'm like, no, no, no. The way I love you is by telling you what is true. 
If you're going to love like Jesus, you have to have both grace and truth. Only truth is brutality, but only grace is hypocrisy. Again, you will not find a moment in the ministry of Jesus where he sacrificed the truth for the sake of peace in the moment. Um, One of my favorite stories early on in the church in our counseling ministry is my dad was doing some biblical soul care with a man and... um, it was marriage issues that they were having. And my dad was meeting with this guy and this guy for six or seven weeks meeting with my dad, he wouldn't listen to anything my dad said. He wasn't doing any homework and he just incessantly complained about his wife. My wife's the worst. Everything's her fault. She's not nice. She's lazy. She's overweight. It was like, it was just constantly him complaining about his wife. And uh, this guy was not exactly a peach. He was addicted to drugs. He had neglected his family. There was a lot of issues, but he couldn't see the issues on, in his heart. He was only focused on his wife. And I remember my dad after six or seven weeks being like, I don't know how to get this man to see that he's got to stop worrying about his wife for a minute and deal with what's going on in his life. I don't know how to get him to see it. So the next time this guy came in, He's complaining about his wife and she's rude and she's impatient and she's treating me terrible. And my dad asked the man the question, he goes, has she always been like this? Like, was she this way when you married her? Because if she was like this when you married her, why did you get married? And the guy's like, oh no, she wasn't like this at all when we got married. When we got married, she was the love of my life and she was beautiful and she was kind and she was patient and we were best friends and I loved everything about her. Now she's completely different and I have no idea what happened. And my dad goes, man, it's pretty terrifying what 20 years under your leadership will do to someone, huh? (laughs) Okay, so here's my question. Did that man feel good in the moment after my dad said that? Probably not. Was my dad being loving? He was. He was desperately trying to get at the heart of this man and tell him the truth that, listen, you've got to own your issues and this marriage is only going to be healed if you humble yourself and are repentant and love your wife like Christ calls you to. One of the most loving conversations I ever had with my mother I was a sophomore in college, I had just transferred to Moody Bible Institute, and I was homesick. I was two weeks into school. My roommates were disasters. I didn't have any friends. I didn't like my classes. And I missed Mary something fierce. And I called my mom and in tears, and I was begging to come home. Like, I'll go work wherever you want me to work. Just let me come home. This isn't working. This isn't right. I'm miserable. And in that moment, my mom loved me enough to say, hey, Cal, I love you, and you need to grow up. And you know the Lord led you to this school. You shouldn't be shocked that there's going to be a period of testing. Your attitude's a choice. You've got to stop feeling bad for yourself. Go make friends. Go lean into the relationship. But when you're sitting around in your dorm room pouting about not being home, you're not going to make any friends that way. And you need to go lean into what the Lord has you. You can't come home. You've got to go do this. Was that easy for her to tell me? No, absolutely not. But it's one of the most defining conversations in my life. She loved me enough to tell me the truth. I hear Christians say all the time, hear me church, I hear Christians say all the time, I think we should just be loving or I just want that person to feel loved. And what we're actually saying is, I just wanna be nice and I want that person to feel good. And church, that's not love. Do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and say, that's not love. The way Jesus chose to love this woman in John 4 was to make her feel uncomfortable and less than amazing. 
But Jesus is being just as loving with her in this moment as he was when he chose to sit with her and talk to her when no one else would. We see Jesus being full of grace and truth. All right, look at verse 20. Here's what uh, it says. It says, our fathers worshiped, this is the woman talking, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, here's the next thing we see. Jesus doesn't allow the woman to deflect, right? Jesus, remember a couple of weeks ago, I said one of the things that the Jesus does is he always turns the mirror back on ourselves. Jesus does that, does that to the woman by talking about her relationships. And the woman's like, hey, can we get this mirror out of my face for a second? And she does what Christians often do. She deflects by talking about a theological debate. She's like, hey, we worship on this mountain, but the Jews worship in Jerusalem. Where's the right place to worship? And Jesus is like, well, if you want to know the truth, the, the, the Jews are right. God's presence is in Jerusalem. But he goes, that doesn't matter. And he brings it right back to her heart. He says that God desires for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he goes, there's a day coming and is now here where it's not about where you go to worship God, but you'll worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. You have to remember in the Old Testament and before Jesus died on the cross, God's presence resided in a physical location. The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So the woman's like, in Samaria, we worship at this temple, but you worship at a temple in Jerusalem. And she's asking, where does God's presence actually live? And Jesus is like, right now it's in Jerusalem, but there's a moment coming where it's not going to be about a physical location anymore, but through faith in the Messiah, we're actually going to receive the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to go to a physical place to have relationship and worship God anymore, but God's spirit is going to indwell in his people because the Messiah will break down the wall of hostility between God and man by paying the punishment for sin. So he's like, stop being worried about where to go, but worship God in spirit, right? The Holy Spirit indwells our heart in salvation. And then he says, and in truth, it's not about where you go, but it's about how you live your life. Who do you worship? Who sits on the throne in your life? What are you living for? Who is, who is king? Jesus says that true worshipers will have God's spirit and they will live in a way where Jesus is on the throne of their life in a real, tangible, practical way. He's bringing it right back to this woman's issue that she's been living for herself and searching for fulfillment outside of God. Jesus is like, you're worried about the wrong thing. And I love verse 25. Look at it. It says, and the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. Um, here's what I love about this verse. This woman's not dumb. You see her put together who she's talking to. And, and it's like, man, she sees Jesus for who he really is. And she's like, man, you sure sound like the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you're right. I am 
him. Look at verse 26. It says, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples get back into town and something wild happens. Like they see Jesus talking with this woman and they're instantly like, hey, we should cancel this woman too. Why is Jesus talking with her? No one talks to this woman. But John's like, we didn't have the courage to call Jesus out. So we're just watching what happens. But then look at verse 29. It says, the woman goes into the town. So this woman who's been canceled by her village goes into the village and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, here's what we see in verse 3. It was the difficult conversation that won the heart of this woman. Like notice what the woman doesn't say in verse 30. She doesn't say, hey, come see this man who was really kind and gracious to me when no one else would talk to me. That's not what she says. She's like, she doesn't say, hey, come see this man who really knows his theology and has a, really cool, a lot of cool things to say about God and the temple. No, what won her heart was Jesus knew everything that was going on in her life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the things that she would have desperately wanted to keep hidden. He brought it to the light, he exposed it, and that's how she knew she was talking to the Messiah. And if you read the rest of John 4, you'll see that the majority of her town comes to faith in Jesus through this testimony. It was the difficult conversation that won her heart. Her heart was transformed when Jesus loved her enough to tell her a difficult truth, even though that truth would have definitely hurt in the moment. Um, I need to be careful about how I say this, but do you know that when people truly love you, that it's going to require them to tell you things that hurt you from time to time? Um, I heard it said this way last night in our small group, but that conflict is the price of intimacy, right? Because everyone has blind spots. No one's perfect. And if you're going to grow close with someone, it's going to mean that these blind spots and these imperfections and our sin natures are going to bump into each other. And people are going to have to say things to reveal things to you in your heart that are going to be difficult and hurtful to hear, but it's actually them loving you. There's a really interesting passage in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, God is, pre is speaking through a prophet and he's laying out judgment for Israel. And in Jeremiah 6, he talks about the leaders of Israel, the, the prophets and the priests. And he lays out a specific judgment for them. And he tells them what they're doing wrong. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 6, 13. He says, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. See what God's saying? He's saying the priests, you didn't tell people that things weren't okay. You wanted to affirm people in the moment. You wanted people to like you. You wanted them to feel good. So you said, hey, everything's good with you and God. There's peace when there wasn't actually peace. You didn't love my people enough to tell them the truth and you caused them to stumble into sin. 
God's condemning the leaders because he didn't love the people enough. They didn't love the people enough to say the things that would hurt. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, church, you know this, wounds hurt, right? Um, there is a, a very, very famous saying that is used all across the country, and I've grown up in the church. If you've been a part of the church, you for sure heard this line, but I'll use our church as an example. I have met at party with the pastors or in the lobby on Sunday mornings, hundreds of people that I've met for the first time. And I'll say, hey, how did you get connected to Harvest? Why'd you start coming here? And the answer will be, well, I was really hurt at my old church, right? How many of you have kind of heard this line, man, I've been hurt by the church before, right? It's very, very common language. And um, is some of that hurt legitimate? Totally. People have been taken advantage of, mistreated, shunned, right? Churches are not perfect. And, and some of that hurt is absolutely legitimate. But what I'm finding is, is a lot of that perceived hurt is actually because other churches were loving people enough to tell them an uncomfortable truth. And the people didn't want to hear it, so they got mad and they left, and they're accusing the church of hurting them when actually the church was trying to love them enough to tell them the truth. Like, listen, we're in February in Michigan. If you're part of a small group and there haven't been any moments of, uncomfor of uncomfort or difficult conversations yet, your small group's not doing it right. If you're going to have a healthy small group, there's going to be moments of difficult conversations and hard truth, and those are actually the fruit of loving one another. Healthy churches will hurt people from time to time, but it's out of a heart of love, and I want to reveal to you sin in your life, and I want you to turn from that sin and honor the Lord. Like church, think about it. The fourth point in my message is that the gospel is a difficult conversation, isn't it? Like if you're going to be saved, if you're going to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't you have to acknowledge some pretty ugly things about yourself in the process? Like I'll use Jonathan because he's one of the nicest guys I know. Here's what the gospel says about Jonathan, that in Jonathan's heart, he's wildly selfish. And he stands condemned before God, that he has rebelled against God, that he has rejected God. And in his own power, he has no ability to save himself. He's ruined his right to eternal life. And that Jonathan needs God, a power outside of himself to come and rescue him. And only when John sees Jesus for who he is, repents of his sin and puts his faith in Jesus, does he have any hope of salvation? He can't do it on his own, right? That's a lot of really bad news to absorb, right? It doesn't make you feel good to hear these things about you. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. When you believe and understand the bad news, it makes the good news all the more sweet. Because it's like in my sin and in my rebellion and in my selfishness, God loves me and he sees me and he pursues me and he wants me and he redeems me and he cleanses me and he restores me and he empowers me and he gives me a family and he gives me a church and he gives me purpose and he gives me life and he changes the narrative of my life and story. He changes my desires to be focused inward, to focus on others and his glory. Isn't that an amazing thing, church? That is the gospel. But we never get the good until we acknowledge, man, I am broken and my heart is wicked and left to myself, I'm going to destroy everything good in my life. I need Jesus. So if that is the foundation of our faith, a difficult conversation, it shouldn't 
surprise us that part of growth in Christ is going to happen through difficult conversations and hard truths being spoken both to others by us and from others to us. Okay, so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to get really practical, and I want to think through, all right, how do we approach these difficult conversations, and how do we tell people the truth in a way that honors Jesus? Because I know if you're like me, I get nervous when it's like, man, I've got to have a hard meeting or a hard conversation. So here's four considerations uh, before having a difficult conversation. Here's the first. Before you have a hard conversation with someone, you need to ask yourself the question, is this a preference issue or is this a truth issue? Is this a sin issue? Is this person violating God's word or do I have a different preference from them? Um, in quickly, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, there's an issue going on in that church. And, and here's the issue. Um, there's a debate over what do you do with meat that has been sacrificed to idols? There's some in the church that have the conviction that that meat is tainted and you can't buy it and you can't eat it, that idols are demonic. And, and so to have meat that has been dedicated to them, you're actually like allowing demons into your life and you should stay away from that. It's wicked and it's evil. Others in the church are like, yeah, but that meat's on sale, right? They're the Dutch people in the church. And they're like, I can get a lot of meat for really cheap. False gods aren't real anyways. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Let me get a steak, please, all right? That's the fight. And here's what Paul says. Paul's like, it's a matter of conviction. Idols aren't real. That meat isn't demonic. But if it if it's, um, makes your conscience wounded, or, or if your conscience is telling you not to eat it because it's going to cause you to stumble, then don't eat it. But here's what he said. He goes, this isn't something to fight over. Unity in the church is more important than your preference in this issue. Lay down your preferences for the benefit of one another. Okay, so here's the question. If we're called to lay down our preferences, what are preferences that we tend to have today? Here's one. Um, here's a preference. What TV show a person watches? It's a preference, right? Um, one time, for like six minutes, I tried to watch the show The Bachelorette. <laughs> and after six minutes, I had to turn it off because I was feeling myself getting dumber as I watched it. <laughs> I'm like, this is fake. These relationships never last. They're filming this at two in the morning after they've given each of the contestants six glasses of wine. It's all drama. It's nonsense. I hated it. Never turned it back on. All right, there's guys on my staff where that's like appointment viewing every week with their spouse. They love it and eat it up. Here's the thing. I think it's dumb. It's not worth fighting over. It's not worth drawing hard lines in. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is working on their life and convicting them. I don't need to be the Holy Spirit. Like, like, it's not something that's like, man, you can't watch that, or that's not godly, or that's not like, listen, it's a preference. I can lay it down, and I'll watch something else that they would probably think is dumb, and we can love each other. It's not worth going to war over. Uh, here's one. Should you or should you not take a vaccine? It's a preference. All right, one of the things, one of the unfortunate truths we learned in the uh, 2020 COVID pandemic was there are way too many Christians that are more committed to being right than to loving others who disagree with them over preference issues. It's a preference. It's not a truth issue. It's not a sin issue. It's not a moral issue. It's a preference. Lay it down for the sake of love and unity. 
Too many people went way too hard in the paint on both sides. Um, here's a preference, how you dress for church, right? This has been a, a point of tension in the American church for decades. It used to be, man, do you have to wear suits? Then it was jeans. Now it's hats. Like, like listen, it's a preference. It's not a truth issue. If you have a preference that dif that's different than someone else, lay it down for the sake of unity. This isn't worth division on. A parenting styles is a preference. So again, if you know our story, you know that our first girls were identical twins. And uh, so what that meant is in order for us to survive, we had to get them on a sleep schedule. So we really ascribe to the parenting method that if when you put your kids down at night, if they cry for 20 minutes or half an hour, they're not going to die. It's actually healthy. They'll be fine. They'll fall asleep. And we let our kids cry it out at night um, occasionally. All right, we have some of our best friends, like the very thought that their kid could be in another room crying, like broke their heart and they never would let that happen. So they would be up all night because every time the baby fussed, they'd go in there and they'd hold him and they'd try to rock him to, to, to sleep. And they just like went the first two years never sleeping. All right, I think they're bonkers. Like that's crazy sauce to me. But listen, it's not that I love my kids more or they love them less or they love them more and I love them less. It's how they're choosing to parent. It's not a truth issue. It's a preference. It never once became an issue in our friendship because we wouldn't let it. You lay down your preferences out of love. We need to hold the line on issues of sin and doctrine and truth. But you don't need to be dogmatic on things you don't need to be dogmatic on. That just kind of makes you a jerk. Here's the next thing you got to consider. Um, am I angry? Am I angry? James 1, 19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay? It is not the right time to have a hard conversation when you're really, really mad. And I would say for myself, one of the things I've gotten pretty good at is I can take criticism pretty well. I don't love it. I don't think anyone loves being criticized, but when people criticize, I understand that's the nature of what I do and it comes with the territory and I can process it well. Here's what I'm not good at. I am not good at um, processing it well when people criticize my wife or my kids, right? If someone comes after Mary, my initial response in that moment in my heart is, all right, I'm gonna grab the shovel. They're never gonna find the body. I've got hiding places, right? And it's like, not today. And so here's what I would say. In the moment when someone's been mean to Mary or my kids, that's not the moment for me to pick up the phone and have the conversation, right? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's what I need to do. I need to give it a night. I need to pray about it. I need to think through what's a way where I can have this conversation that honors the truth, but is also gracious and where I'm not coming in just trying to wound someone, but actually trying to love someone. I've got to take a breath. Right? We tell parents when you discipline your kid, don't discipline them when you're mad at them. Don't discipline them out of a heart of anger. You've got to take a moment, send them to their room, pray together and be like, Lord, we know they're your kids. We want to steward them well. Help us to, to discipline them in a way that's out of a heart of love and for their good. Look at me. We say and do really dumb things when we're mad. We lose control. I would say some of the things that we have said in our lives that we regret the most were probably when we were really mad. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's the third consideration. Am I offering to be part of the solution? Am I offering to be part of the solution? 
remember a couple years ago, I got a call from Mary. It was like on a Tuesday, halfway through the day. And Mary's like, hey, Cal, um, I think someone needs to come uh, move in with us and live with us for a while. And I was like, please explain. Like, this wasn't on the agenda for me today. Like, what's going on? And what had happened is, is a girl that used to be in our youth group reached out to Mary and uh, said, hey, can we get coffee? And, and in coffee, she was explaining to Mary how she was in a relationship that wasn't honoring to the Lord, that she was living with her boyfriend, that the relationship wasn't great, and she was really feeling um, convicted by the Holy Spirit that she needs to end things, but she has nowhere to live, and she doesn't know what to do, but was really like, I, I don't know what to do, Mary. And so Mary loved her enough to tell her the truth. You need to break up with this guy. You need to move out. You're not honoring the Lord. You need to honor the Lord with your sexuality, and you need to trust him. But then she said, if you need somewhere to go, you can move in with Cal and I. And you can live at our place for a few months rent-free, and that will help you get on your feet. And she was offering to be a part of the solution. To just tell someone the truth and then be like, all right, now it's on you to go figure out. I hope it goes well for you. That's just a drive-by shooting. If you're going to love someone enough to have the hard conversation, you need to love them enough to be like, hey, I'm willing to be a part of the solution. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help hold you accountable. I'll meet with you every week, and I'm going to walk through this with you, and I care for you, and I'm with you. It's not enough just to say, hey, you're screwed up. Go fix it. Uh, in Galatians 6, it says this. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He, here's what he's saying. When someone is caught in sin, and this isn't like hard-hearted, I'm gonna keep doing it. But this is when like, man, I know this doesn't honor the Lord, but I'm stuck and I don't know how to get out of it. It says, restore him in a way that's gentle and bear their burdens and walk alongside them. Are you willing to be a part of the solution? And then here's the last. Does my kindness keep pace with my truth? Does my kindness keep pace with my truth? All right, I've spent most of this message trying to build an argument that you can't actually love someone like Jesus and not be willing to tell them the truth and have the difficult conversation because I know most of us struggle with this. All right, but look at me. I'm gearing this last point to people who take pride in being truth tellers and people to, who love to have hard conversations. And here's what I would say. There's a difference between loving someone and having a hard conversation with them and just being critical. If you're the person that every time you talk to someone, you're just being critical and saying the hard thing, that's not actually loving them either. Here's what I would say. I bet you we all have someone in our life that we can think of that it's like if you see them at Myers or if you see them in the office, you're like, please don't see me. Please don't turn. Please don't come talk to me, right? Because you know it's going to be a siphon of joy out of your life because it's a critical spirit. If you are going to speak the truth to someone, what you're called to do, I think what Jesus shows us in John 4 is a great model. He led with grace, right? He talked with her when no one else would. He was kind to her. He was compassionate to her. But that wasn't love all by itself. He actually loved her enough to continue the conversation, to point her to the Messiah, to reveal the issues in her heart, and it led to her salvation. I love John 4 so much because we see both Jesus being full of grace full of truth. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to aspire to these things as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. Um, 
I thank you for a convicting couple of weekends, God. And uh, I know I'm convicted that um, Jesus's grace and compassion is amazing and I've got room to grow in that. And I see that Jesus' commitment to the truth was amazing and I have room to grow in that as well. Help us to have the desire to honor you, to love you, to be people who like you are full of grace and truth. God, I'm so thankful for a church that loves you, that loves your word and is committed to growing in these things. We need your help. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.